Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. We're the two worst people to start an estate planning company. <laughs> we always joke that, you know, Willful uh, in part has been successful because we're not founded by lawyers because lawyers are, are great, uh, but maybe not the best marketers and, and brand builders. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. In this episode, I'm joined by Aaron Bury of Willful. Aaron's going to talk about digital estate planning. Uh, this episode is good for a pretty good selection of continuing education credits, uh, life insurance credits for British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario. It'll also be good for half a credit for accident and sickness in Alberta. Be good for an IAS credit, that's the advocacy credits, uh, good for a professional development credit through IROC, and an estate planning credit with MFDA. Um, so Erin is the uh, founder, one of the founders, along with her husband, Kevin, a Willful, and uh, she's done a great job getting the word out about digital wills. She's a really good marketer. You hear why in the episode. Um, we're going to start off with our object. So the object, this is a jar of sand. Oh, where? There we go. A jar of sand um, from Asila, Morocco. You just have to know a jar of sand. You don't have to get the location right. Uh, my wife and I went to Morocco in the fall and just had a fantastic time. I actually tried to record some content from there, uh, but something went wrong with the content that I recorded. So uh, you don't get to see our um, beautiful courtyard for our hotel in Morocco, which was uh, top notch. I'd go back in a second. All right. Uh, we're going to roll into the interview. And uh, following the interview, I'm going to have some comments about um, will storage and retention. And uh, yeah, thanks very much. Um, I really enjoyed the discussion with Erin. She's a top-notch interviewee. Again, you can tell she's a real pro at this. I'm here today with Erin Burry. Erin is uh, well-known, I imagine, to a lot of folks watching this, a very active uh, social media presence and so forth. And uh, I think CEO, right? And one of the founders of Willful. Is that right? Yes. Great to Um, be here, Jason. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today, Erin. Can you give us a little bit of uh, like the origin story for Willful to get us started? Of course, yeah. So it was in 2015, my my husband's uncle passed away unexpectedly. And uh, like anyone who's lost a loved one, you're kind of faced with these logistical tasks, but also just how to honor their legacy in, in the right way through celebrations of life. And Uh, He had just never discussed any of those components with his wife of 40 years or with any of our other family members. So, you know, we're sitting around arguing and debating some of these choices. And Kev thought to himself, my husband, Kevin, uh, you know, there's got to be a better way. How, you know, how can we reduce the barriers to this stuff? Fast forward about a year and he was actually hospitalized for a week with septic arthritis in his ankle. And you know, thought to himself as he was laying in the hospital bed, oh my goodness, I don't even have a will. At least my uncle had a will. If I passed away because of this, I'd be leaving Erin in this really tough spot where, you know, she'd have the unanswered questions, but also the state mess of of dying without a will. So that was kind of the kick in the butt (laughs) to to actually leave his job in trades and to start a company that was devoted to 
kind of filling the gap that we saw, which was, you know, beautiful user-friendly tools that help people build an estate plan in the same way that TurboTax helps people with simplified taxes uh, and really serves a segment of the population who are not the folks who are going to a professional and spending, you know, four figures on getting an estate plan done. Um, neither of you has a, you said he left the trades, neither of you has a legal background or anything like that, right? And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, neither of you has a really strong technology background either. Am I misremembering here, Aaron? No, we're the two worst people to start an estate planning company. <laughs> we always joke that, you know, Willful uh, in part has been successful because we're not founded by lawyers because lawyers are, are great, uh, but maybe not the best marketers and, and brand builders. We really look at it as Willful is by consumers for consumers. Obviously, we have to have the legal side down pat. So we took the approach of actually partnering with uh, practicing estate lawyers in each province who help us to develop the legal templates and keep them up to date over time as, as things change or as we improve our documents. Uh, but realistically, if we had one in-house lawyer, they would only be licensed in that one province. So uh, having those partners in each province allows us to make sure that we have uh, provincial expertise represented, although we are going to be bringing it an, on an in-house legal team this year. Okay. Uh, can I ask about keeping current then? Like whose responsibility is it to, because, you know, Ontario went through a big change with uh, state law legislation last year, if memory serves. Um who sort of has responsibility for making sure you stay current with that stuff? Yeah, so it's it's actually part of our contract with the provincial lawyers. So they're not only kind of creating that legal content, but doing reviews of our documents and also notifying us of any legislative changes. Often we're seeing those, though, as they come out, you know, uh, it was big news when British Columbia announced that they were going to be doing digital wills. So our team is just following a lot of that news inherently. And so we come across it on our own or it's surfaced by one of our legal partners. Great example, you know, last summer, Nova Scotia made an update to the Power of Attorney Act that required two witnesses instead of one. Uh, you know, our partner there notified us and we were able to easily kind of make a change to our product to add that second witness signature prior to that going into effect. It's a great example. That's uh, yeah, perfect. Um, now back. To, we have the script here. We'll go back to the script, Aaron. So, um, so who's your uh, ideal client then? It's me, Jason. It's you know, I'm 37. I'm married. I'm a homeowner. I have a child, and I started thinking about my own will uh, after we bought a house. Years after we bought our first property, which is way later than I probably should have been thinking about it, but. You know, there's a real problem in Canada in that uh, we don't learn a lot about estate planning and the importance of it in school. It's not something we discuss at the dinner table. So what we see is that creating a will is very motivated by life triggers. Uh, usually those are life events like the ones I just mentioned, having a child, uh, you know, buying a home, getting married or divorced. Uh, but they can also be as a result of circumstances, for example, a loved one passing away or being diagnosed with an illness. So uh, our average customer is between uh, you know, 30 and 55. Uh, they're going through one of those, those life moments. The majority of them are uh, parents. But we also have this secondary audience of boomers and retirees who either are you know, cost sensitive and so they want to update an old will. Uh, in a cost-effective way, or like my dad, they just never got around to creating a will. And when they went to do it, willful is just, you know, they have a simple situation and, and willful tends to be a fit. The folks for whom willful isn't necessarily the right fit are the folks who have complexity. And I know we're going to get into that shortly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, and I, I guess just you could roll right into that here. So what would be, you know, the, and what would be the things that would represent that complexity and how does the person know when, like, is it you go in, like, is there a screening tool on your website or how does somebody, you know, recognize that their situation is is too much for, you know, a digital will? Yeah, it's a great question. So we uh, have actually designed a warnings page in in tandem with the, the Law Society of Ontario that highlights some of those scenarios that can add complexity. The short answer is it depends. You know, you can be, it's not necessarily about size of assets. You can be a billionaire, but if everything is in, you know, pretty simple places, then it's not necessarily about the size of the estate. 
Uh, it's about your comfort level, right? We don't offer legal advice or tax advice. So if you want that personalized advice, even if you have the world's simplest estate, then Willful's not going to be a fit for you. Uh, and then it also depends on your life situation. So for example, if you have a child with a disability, there is a certain type of trust that you might want to set up or that you should set up. Uh, and we don't cater to that. Uh, we don't do any sort of trust outside of simple testamentary trust for minor children. Uh, if you're in a blended family, often there are considerations. So those are the types of scenarios that we highlight on our warnings page. Uh, and so people either self-select out or the product just kind of weeds them out because they want to do something that our platform can't accommodate. For example, uh, right now we don't support uh, joint powers of attorney. And so if they want to do that, you know, that's something that they'd have to work with a professional on. Uh, but that's something that we're constantly looking to improve is how can we educate people about the implications of the choices they're making in their will, the considerations that they might have around those, and whether or not something like willful works, or if they would want to go to a professional instead, much like on TurboTax, you know, you might discover as you go through the tool that, oh, I actually do need to speak with an accountant and this might not be the best fit. And in fact, we had, uh, so my most recent episode of this podcast went live last Wednesday, the first Wednesday in the year. And we talked about uh, the new trust rules, the new uh, trust reporting rules showing up there and how um, it's an accountant doing the interview. But I think she rightly said there's a boatload of people out there who are sort of counting on TurboTax right now. But these new trust reporting rules, maybe maybe TurboTax isn't going to do it for them anymore. So Okay, I'm going to have to listen to that. So I uh, so I, I make sure I'm on the right side of that. Yeah, it's nothing. It's not a big estate issue for sure. It's interesting, but it's not. It's mostly... Uh, a concern while alive. I don't, yeah, it, it doesn't, uh, I, don't know. I don't think it affects the kind of trust you would be dealing with in that sense. So, well, a little bit, but it's a, it's a post issue. It's not a pre-issue. So for sure. But that is one great point um, that you just brought up there is that there are a lot of folks who may want to transfer wealth while they're still alive through like, you know, through, um, inter vivos trusts while they're alive or through gifts to their family, uh, they might want to have a discussion with an accountant or a lawyer about tax minimization strategies through things like dual wills for business owners. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of those things that we do try to surface in in the product, but uh, we can certainly get better at that over time. Um, okay, so now tons of folks listen to this call. They'll have taken their CFP classes along the way somewhere, whatever it is, and they will know the sort of standard here you go in sit down with the the lawyer like the traditional lawyer the lawyer hands over a typewritten document it's got the two spaces on the three space on the bottom sorry you get your sign as the testator two witnesses all that good stuff right this is a fair i think my 30 second summary but so yes. how do you get that to happen in a digital form what's this look like yeah. So, I mean, typically the the process you just described for the, with the professional, typically they're starting with a template will that they've drafted, right? They probably keep that in Microsoft Word. And when they sit face-to-face -face or virtually with their clients, they're running them through a series of questions that lead them down different paths, right? If you have a child, I'm going to ask you about things like guardians. If you don't, I might ask you about pets or you know charitable gifts, things like that. Uh, and they're getting the answers from that person and they're plugging them into their template will and including clauses or not including clauses based on their choices. That's exactly what we do at Willful. It's just digital. Uh, the big difference is we're not going to be able to add the type of customization that a lawyer or professional might be able to add. So for example, you know, a lot of folks say to us, well, I, I just need to add a clause, you know, that says that I only want my nephew to get this gift if he graduates university. And that's where we have to educate about, well, we don't do conditional gifts right now. That's something that you'd have to go to a professional for. So the process itself is very similar. The main difference is obviously we're not giving legal advice and we can't add the level of customization that a professional would be able to. Um, and the result is the same, right? It's, it's a document. In our case, it's a PDF that comes with a set of instructions on how to uh, sign and execute it. Uh, with traditional will kits, I think one of the complaints is that a lot of folks uh, have it witnessed incorrectly because they're not aware of, you know, beneficiaries not being able to be uh, uh, witnesses. So we have a really clear instructions page that 
uh, outlines the steps, but also a list of names of folks who should not be witnesses to try to ensure that they're executing it properly. Oh, they would uh, print, like, does it need wet ink? They print off that PDF and then scan it back in? Or how does that mechanically work? Yeah, so that's actually the the thing that people are most annoyed by with Willful, and it's nothing we can control, right? They say, oh, man, I don't have a printer at home. Like, I, I wish I could just digitally execute it. And we say, well, we wish you could too. But the law requires you have to print it. Uh, right now, we don't offer a printing and shipping service. It's, we put the onus on the customer to, to have it printed and executed on their end. Uh, and because we can't store the wills digitally by law, uh, the onus is on the customer to also kind of store it in a safe place, share it with their executor, et cetera. So, you know, typically if a professional is creating your will, you're probably paying them an annual storage fee or they're just holding on to it for you. So with Willful, uh, the customer stores it in their home or somewhere safe instead. Um, so now what about concerns about uh, capacity or undue influence? How do you address that with uh, with an online tool like that? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, there there is kind of a, a legal definition of how to assess capacity and lawyers are actually not able to assess capacity either, right? That's left up to medical professionals. So I think the difference between willful and a professional is that a professional like a lawyer can make notes in a file that help to support any capacity assessment or to support any claims made against it. Whereas with willful, we're really saying you're generating your own legal documents. You are attesting that you are who you say you are, that you have capacity. And the purpose of the witnesses is to verify your identity, right? That's that's why you have two people witness, because they're saying, yes, it's Aaron. Aaron is the one that's standing in front of me, uh, you know, signing this will. And, and she understands the contents of the documents because um, she's asked me to sign them. So uh, the short answer is we don't assess capacity. We put the onus for capacity on the will maker. And if there's ever a question of capacity, it would follow the same process for if there was a capacity question with a, a lawyer drafted will. This is a fair point for the advisors listening that, you know, if you're going to send a client to use willful, I think that if that if there's some capacity question, maybe that's maybe that goes back into your your comment earlier about sort of screening people away from the product. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that what I would say is uh, it's the same as if someone wants to disinherit someone or if they think that there's going to be any question around the will. With a lawyer, they can add notes to the file, and if they're ever called into court, they can you know attest to what happened in their meeting. They can refer back to those notes on file. Uh, and we always say, you know, at Willful, we help people say what they do want to happen. We don't tackle things like disinheritance, which is another thing that's highlighted on our warnings page. So if you want to cut your brother out of your will, you have every right to. But if you think he's going to make a claim against it, you might want to go to a lawyer, have them write in the will specifically. I don't want to give money to my brother, John, because we haven't spoken for 25 years. So that's, you know, when we work with advisors, Typically, it, it's never a blanket suggestion to go to willful. They look at the client situation. Does it have complexity? You know, do I think there could be uh, a claim against the estate in future because of family dynamics? Uh, could there be a capacity question? Uh, and then they use their judgment on, okay, I'm going to send them to my go-to set of lawyers or, you know, at willful, you know, they're 35 with a kid and they don't have complexity and they're digital savvy, I'm going to send them straight to Willful. So we never expect that Willful is going to be the right fit in every situation. And in many situations, it's not. And, and we actively send customers away every hour of every day and say, you know, no, you have to visit a professional. This is not the best fit for you. Now, what about uh, personal directors and powers of and personal directors or whatever the appropriate name is in whatever for heavens um, and uh, powers of attorney? Yes, it'd be a lot simpler if we could just agree on a name for those in each province. But uh, yes, we do. So we have a few plans at Willful. You can buy a will on its own if you already have powers of attorney or, or choose not to get them at that time. Uh, and then we do have a package that includes a will and both types of, of powers of attorney. Uh, obviously, those are catered to each province, not just the naming convention, but also the, the content and references to, to provincial legislation. And our powers of attorney are pretty simple, right? They 
are basically saying, you know, do you want life-saving measures performed? What type of pain relief medication would you want? Would you want the maximum, even if it hastens your passing? Uh, and we know that in, in many provinces, like Ontario, for example, you can provide additional instructions outside of a medical power of attorney document that your attorney would be bound to follow. So, uh, you know, a lot of times, if you, again, advisors listening, if you have a client where you know they have a laundry list of wishes, if I get this thing, then I want this to happen, willful powers of attorney are quite general. So, it doesn't mean that it negates them from using willful for their will. You just may want to have them work with a professional on the powers of attorney specifically if there's someone that has, you know, a lot of very specific wishes. Yeah, that's very helpful again. And, you know, same, you said a real baseline there. Like, I get it, right? It's it, it works well for lots of folks, but as things get more complicated, we, you know, go pay the the big bucks to get it done sitting in somebody's office, right? That, yes. That yeah. And, 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 you know, I think it's also a comfort level thing for some people. Yeah. They just, especially on the medical wishes side of things, they, they just want to chat through things, which is why advisors are such a crucial part of this, this process, right? Uh, advisors are often the folks, I mean, even my own financial advisor, when I sat with him in our initial meeting, he had a big binder uh, and one of the tabs was wills and kind of asking me these questions. And so you're often the maybe the first person that's actually bringing this up and getting them to think about these questions. And so you can be instrumental in bringing up some of those questions around powers of attorney. Well, okay, you said you want your power of attorney to be your sister, to give that power to your sister, but she lives in England. Is that reasonable that she's going to be able to get home if there's a medical emergency? And those are the types of things that we try to educate people on, but advisors can play an instrumental role. So by the time they get to willful, they've maybe weeded themselves out because of some of the answers. Thanks. Yeah, perfect. Um, now, do you, and this is not really a willful question, but You've been living in this world. You were the, as you said, the the consumer for whom this was sort of intended. So why do you think people don't have wills? And I don't know, you speculated a little bit about this already, I think, but I'd like to explore this more fully. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two categories. One is just the practical sides of it. You know, it's expensive. You know, even if you have a simple situation, creating your documents with a professional, depending on where you live, is on average going to you know cost you about eight hundred dollars, and then you're going to pay a fee every time you go back to get those updated. So I think it's prohibitive, especially to people who are a bit earlier in their lives and they're going through those changes. Like when I'm 28, eight hundred dollars is a lot of money. Uh, when I'm 65 and I'm my dad, who's on a fixed income, it's also a lot of money. So I think that's the first reason. I think a lot of people just practically don't know where to start. They have misconceptions around, I don't need a will until I'm older or until I'm wealthy. Uh, I I need to have too much prepared. You know, I have to have my tax returns and all of this information gathered, which is not the case. Uh, and so they the kind of complexity of it deters them. And then I think it's just a, 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 a convenience thing as well, right? So scheduling appointments, actually taking that step to to schedule meetings and and to finish them, and and actually just to execute the documents, right? I know a lot of folks for whom they get to the last step, and then it's just the gathering witnesses and going through that whole process that can be prohibitive. That's the practical side of it: cost, complexity, convenience. There's this other side to it, which is just human nature. And it's human nature to procrastinate on things that don't have a deadline. And while we all have a deadline, which is the date we pass away, you don't know when that is, right? And you assume it's 70 years in the future. So human nature is to put off thinking about death, if at all possible, and to assume I don't need to get my will done today because I'm not going to die tomorrow. That's the, uh, do you know Hal Hirschfeld in the future self? Do you know this thing? I don't. Well, this is a great bit of research. So he's a marketing prof at UCLA, and he uh, he connects people to uh, functional MRI, and then he has them go through like a whole like hundreds of questions in the day, right? And uh, one of the things that he found is that as you get further and further down the road, like if I'm thinking about Jason in 20 years, I actually think about that the same way as I think about it, uh, another person. Mm. It's uh, it's like the ship of Theseus or whatever where how disconnected I am from that person then, you know, impedes my ability to plan for that future event, right? It's uh... Yeah, because you don't have the same emotional attachment. Well, and, uh, you know, we also have folks who say, 
I don't really care because I'll be gone, right? Like one of the biggest value propositions of putting an estate plan in place is reducing burden on your family, both the emotional burden that I described earlier of unanswered questions, but also logistical burdens, cost burdens of having to engage professionals after the fact, et cetera. But for some people, they're like, well, at that time, I won't be around. So uh, we don't try to convert those people. We try to focus on the people for whom having a will it has been on their list for years. They've wanted to check it off. And, and when we've done a lot of customer interviews with folks who haven't created a will and the, the emotions that they describe around it, and maybe advisors know this because they've talked to their clients about it, they use words like anxious and guilty. Like They don't like that they haven't created a will, but those barriers that I talked about earlier have somehow prevented them from it for, in some cases, decades, right? And I, someone we interviewed described it as you know, the one big thing. When they think about it, it's so overwhelming because they don't know where to start that it, it's this boulder that keeps gathering steam as it goes downhill. And it started as this small to-do and it's become this behemoth, even though in practice, it's actually quite simple. So you know, we hear from advisors all the time They've been working with clients for five years, 10 years, 20 years, and every single meeting they've had with them for that time, they've asked them about their will. They've given them a list of lawyers or services like ours. And every time they talk to them, they haven't done it. And that is the same challenge we we deal with every day at Willful. How do we actually find people who have the intent and get them through to the finish line? And I we don't have a, a solution yet. We're We're experimenting every day, but... Uh, I really think it is redu- removing those barriers is the first step. Uh, and yeah, just you've talked about the $800 will. I don't know how often that's actually like I, we just, my wife and I just did read it. Our wills we're in this more complicated category. I have a child with a disability. I have another child that probably shouldn't have a bunch of money in their hands for other reasons. Uh, regular listeners, the podcast will know some of this stuff. And I have shares in a business and yada, 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 right? Like, it's just my situation is not simple. Um, and uh, yeah, we paid, and this was at a substantial discount. The lawyer who did it knows me and and 3500 bucks to get two wills done. Like, it's not, yeah, no uh, no $800 will for me. So Well, and that's and that's totally a generalization just based on kind of average, yeah. average no, cost. I, but yeah. that's what we hear all the time, right? And it's funny, we, we get one of two reactions from the legal community. Either estate lawyers say, I don't like you because you are a challenge to our business model or because I think everyone should visit a professional. Uh, Or you get folks who say, thank God you exist because I get so many clients in my office every day who just can't pay and shouldn't pay my $1,500 rate and you're the perfect uh, alternative for them. And for many, you know, we often get asked by investors or media or partners, you know, who do you compete with? And yes, we have, there are other online will providers from Epilogue to Legal Wills in Canada and others in, in places like the US and UK. Uh, but I always say that we compete with complacency. We compete with the people for whom the alternative isn't a lawyer. It's not doing it at all. So I am, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I am a willful customer myself, right? Not for my wills, though. I knew that that we weren't ideal candidates for it but you know for our like we have three children and a bonus child who are all in their 20s now some in their 30s but at the time all in their 20s that you know they were all in relationships they they need wills like so for christmas i don't remember aaron four years ago maybe i don't know i you have a six pack like at the time anyways it was six for like 100 bucks each something like that and mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, now they didn't all end up doing it, which I'm curious. I have to ask you about this a little later on, but they have the opportunity to do it anyway. So, and some of them did, which I was happy with. I, I, uh, my thought on it always was I knew they weren't all going to do it, but if any one of them did it, it's still worth it to have that will. So, well, and, and thank you for being one of our first family plan customers. I remember that back in the day. And that was the motivation of the family plan is, you know, most of our customers are, uh, our couples, not not all of them, but about two thirds are our couples doing their will with them and a spouse or them and a sibling. I shouldn't say couples, I should say multiples of two, uh, parent, child. And so the the ethos behind expanding that was, you know, there becomes an influencer in a family around estate planning. When you've done your will, 
and you have that peace of mind, you're probably going to message the family group chat or you're going to bring it up at Thanksgiving. And if we can actually empower people to help their family get it done, then there's a higher chance, and just like you referenced, that they'll actually get it done. So uh, we've definitely seen a lot of folks who, you know, it's not the sexiest Christmas present, but... uh, (laughs) But often, you know, for example, I'll give this as a baby shower gift because I know that it's on someone's list when they have a child. I had a a daughter just over a year ago. And one of the first things I did, maybe not the first thing, but in the first few weeks, I updated my will and it was it's something that's on a lot of to do lists. So uh, that's actually what we work with advisors on is equipping them with plans to give out to their clients around key life milestones. I never thought about the baby shower gift, but that's brilliant. That's uh... It's a great idea. Maybe maybe and, combine uh, it with a cute outfit just so they have something else to open. But fair. yeah, nobody uh, no, nobody's eyes light up when they open up the the, the will email or whatever, right? But uh, yeah, I, I I get it. That's uh, and honestly, that Christmas everybody was they got other stuff too, but they were I think a little puzzled by it. So yeah, which I, again I kind of expected that, but um, I still would do it again. So um, now what about um? the advisor or sort of group benefits rep. So what do you see as, I don't want to say necessarily sales tools here, but like implementation tools or encouragement tools, what works for to, to actually get people to think they need to do this? Yeah. So we have a couple of different models for, for how we run our partnerships. We have great partnerships with Allstate Insurance and CIBC and Arbor Memorial Funeral Homes and with a variety of, of financial planning firms like Peak Financial and Investia. Uh, and the model is one of two things. The first is just straight referral. So that's as simple as you know an advisor has a conversation with a client. They ask them if they have a will. The answer is no. They know a bit about their situation and they recommend willful, maybe in tandem with visiting a professional. Uh, and typically advisors don't want to earn a commission or a revenue share on that because they want to be very agnostic. But for some partners, they do want to earn a revenue share for any customer that comes our way. Uh, the second option is purchasing willful licenses and giving them to clients either for free or reselling them or at- baking them into the fee. So this is a lot of advisors who say, you know, I want every client to have a will. I know not every client is going to be a fit for willful, but, um, you know, a percentage of them will be. So we sell them, let's say, 20, 50, 100 uh, willful licenses at a discounted rate, and they pass those out to to clients to do for free uh, or to kind of b- bake into their fee. And as a part of that, you know, the second part of your question was, and how do you actually help the clients get it done? So we do a lot of will writing workshops, right? So depending on the the partnership, we'll actually invite clients to a session with me where I walk through the willful platform step-by-step, talk about the nuances. You know, when we get to the executor page, we're talking about out of province, out of country, what to consider, answering those common questions. And then, you know, hopefully in that session, getting them to the point where they've completed it, checked out with that free plan given to them by the advisor, Uh, and they're ready to go print and sign it. So that tends to be really popular because people need a deadline. And if the deadline is I'm getting on a call, you can have the conversations in advance, or at least you leave that session having thought about some of those key roles to a point in the will, and you're that much further than you may have been. So we found that to be a really effective tool for uh, advisors is hosting those sessions for their, their clients, equipping them with education materials and and other components that they can see their clients with to help them get to the finish line. Yeah, that's great. Um, and yeah, I didn't know you're doing those will writing workshops. That's simply, so that would be like you say for, you know, this group, like you talked about all states, so you'd say to all state, like we're putting on a session for your folks on whatever, January 20th and come to that session. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, we do two types of sessions. The first would just be what we call estate planning 101, which is just the basics. You know, what what is a will? What makes it legal? What are the things you need to know about choices you're making, roles you're appointing? How do you execute it? How do you keep it up to date? Uh, And we do a lot of those for employers. You asked about kind of group benefits. This is a very popular topic with employers because employees are asking about it and because it's just a component of financial wellness, which is really important to them. Uh, so we do a lot of those just high level education sessions for employers, partners, for our 
unconverted customers who we want to help get to the finish line. Uh, the will writing workshops are uh, kind of a different session. They're less about the okay, the ba- the high level. What is a will? They're more about okay, you you know you need a will. Maybe your advisor has told you. Maybe this has been on your list for five years. This is show up and actually go through willful specifically. So now that you know willful is the right fit, let's actually help you get through it. And maybe you do realize on that in that session, oh, willful is not the right fit for me because of something Aaron said. Well, that's okay. You know we. Uh, you can delete your account. And we also have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So we do have instances all the time where people say, listen, I really like Willful, but you know, I was chatting with my lawyer friend and he mentioned that I should really have this thing or you know, my wife and I were reviewing it and we really want to have this thing that you don't support. And so for advisors, it's also important to know your clients have 30 days to get their money back. That's like the chatting with my lawyer friend you know, presumably then in some way, willful still becomes the trigger to go and get your estate planning done properly, right? Like that's sort of an Well, that's why I always say, I mean, lawyers should love us because I spend all day, you know, you mentioned our backgrounds. My background is I ran a tech marketing agency for six years. I was a tech journalist uh, and my background is in building brands. And I spend all day, every day building profile around why a will is important, how to create one. And so I feel like I do free marketing every day for the estate lawyers across the country, because I know for many of the people who who hear that message, that's going to be the right choice for them. Um, now, what about uh, what's going on? You mentioned this a little bit earlier uh, in British Columbia right now, the uh, digital wills experiment or trial or what, I can't remember what the technical term is, but anyways, can you tell us a little bit what's going on in BC right now? Yeah, so British Columbia became the first province to allow fully digital wills on December 1st, 2021. So it's been in effect for just over a year. Uh, This means that residents can electronically sign a will using DocuSign or Adobe, whatever method they choose. Uh, They can have their will virtually witnessed over Zoom, so they don't have to actually get together with witnesses in person, and they can store the will electronically. So that was big news for us in the estate planning world. Uh, And we've seen a model for this in U.S. states like Arizona and Florida. Uh, So this is new in Canada, but not new in other countries. Uh, So as of December 2021, we partnered with DocuSign and launched a free service that helps our users in British Columbia execute their wills digitally. So how it works is you live in BC, you go through the same process anyone else would, you're provided with that PDF will. Uh, Obviously, the instructions page alludes to how you can either print it and sign it because some people absolutely still want to do that, uh, or you can execute it electronically. And we give them the option of booking an appointment with our team, and we help them actually sign that via DocuSign. We provide the witnesses, and then we just provide them back the uh, executed copy of the will, and we still uh, you know, have them store that on their computer or email it to their executor, store in a cloud service. Uh, there's no restrictions on kind of where someone can, can store it, uh, according to the legislation. And so far, it's been very well received. We've seen... Uh, you know, the big one of the biggest barriers for folks, especially in rural areas in BC, is getting physical witnesses in person. So this eliminates the need for them to do that and eliminates the need for them to travel, which is uh, has been really helpful. I, I'm with you there. I, that it, and I know it happened a little bit during COVID where you could sort of have everybody like countersign, you know, watch on Zoom as, you know, person A signs and then person B on the Zoom call signs. That seemed even like a little bit simpler solution, although I heard a lot of lawyers complain about the amount of paper that floats around that way. So, Well, it's very inefficient, Jason, because so for anyone listening in Alberta or Ontario, you might be thinking, wait, I thought we had digital wills. Well, no, we have virtual witnessing, which is very different. That says that I can get on a Zoom call with Jason and my other witness And we each have a physical copy of the will, and we each have to sign that physical copy. You both send back your copies to me, and I'm going to store all three of those physical copies, you know, together to form that legal will, which is just completely backwards, you know. And I said as much to the judicial committee that was extending this permanently. This is inefficient. It's going to, it's a waste of paper. 
I guarantee there's folks who don't understand that they have to store them all together and are, you know, have wills that aren't being executed correctly. So I think, you know, you can't have virtual witnessing without electronic signatures. And my hope is that other provinces will follow suit. Since we initially spoke, actually, Saskatchewan has followed suit and allowed for digital wills, uh, which is uh, a new development, which is great. Uh, so we're seeing the dominoes fall in other provinces following suit. No, that had changed in Saskatchewan. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yes. That's okay. Um, and yeah, I actually sold a business during COVID and we did everything in like that counter. And it was, yeah, there's thousands of pages of share purchase agreements floating around because of this. It's ridiculous. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think it'll be a little bit of a mess in, you know, 50 years when people are like, oh, was this during COVID when there was virtual witnessing? So uh, the, the good thing is the attorney general in Ontario, Doug Downey, one of their mandates is to kind of catch up with technology. And we were invited to a roundtable recently to kind of share experiences from our customers and feedback. And so my hope is that they are listening. Uh, but let's be honest, you know, this is a slow moving space. And so change won't happen overnight. Yeah, that's it, it is. It's a, I don't know. I think that the legal profession in general likes the status quo and that's you know just and that's not enough there's good reasons to take things slow and careful i get all that so um now any i don't know if there's anything you can share here stats wise or like anything you've seen in bc where you say like hey this is something concrete we can point to that uh, that shows the benefit of this i mean we've seen our 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 users in BC go up a lot proportionally faster. So, you know, customers in BC have grown at a rate of about 200% in that year after digital signatures came into effect uh, versus the uh, growth in other provinces. And we've also done a bunch of polling with Angus Reid to understand the attitudes around digital wills and really found that uh, when we ask BC residents now, how likely are you to get your will done in the next year because you can do it digitally, we see a huge proportion of people say, yeah, I actually am more likely to do it because it's digital. So again, going back to the idea of removing barriers, some people are always going to choose to print their will or to do it offline via professional because either their comfort level isn't with digital tools. But for most people, you know, digital has become the natural choice, uh, either because you're already a digital native or because you were forced into it during COVID. You know, my dad was not an Amazon guy until he was forced to order a bunch of stuff yeah. online during COVID because of the lockdown. So uh, I think what we've really seen is just a sentiment change that a lot of people uh, accept digital wills. A lot of people understand that it makes it a lot simpler and more convenient and that it's actually been a catalyst to get people to the finish line uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, agreed. Now, can we switch gears a little bit here? And I know this isn't specifically a topic for like willful or for digital asset or digital estate planning, but the, I think it's something you probably are more aware of than a lot of people in this space, and that would be around digital assets. Mm -hmm. So I don't, can you just talk generally, like when I even use that word digital assets, what what am I talking about here? What should people be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, there's there's digital assets that have value and should be treated like any other asset in your will. And I'll speak about those in a moment. And then there's just your digital footprint and your 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 digital accounts. And I think those are treated a little bit differently. So uh, when it comes to digital assets, the most common ones that we see now are cryptocurrency and NFTs or any other type of kind of digital asset in the metaverse. Uh, and it's, you know, in terms of how to actually handle them in your will, it's it's just like you would handle any other asset. It either falls into your, your residue of your estate or you can leave it as a, a specific bequest. Uh, it's actually in the handling and the access that it gets really tricky, right? We've all heard those stories about someone who lost $30 million in Bitcoin because they put their computer in the garbage and it's now sitting in the landfill. Uh, so we've done a lot of education and uh, you know, media interviews and things like that about, you know, if you have crypto, yes, it's important to account for it in your estate plan. But more importantly, you need to provide access details to your executor. And that's true of any asset you have, right? There's hundreds of millions in unclaimed money sitting in bank accounts across Canada because folks didn't tell their executor that they had a bank account at TD in addition to the bank account at RBC. Uh, and it's the same with crypto. Hey, I have it, first of all. 
Uh, and second of all, here's how to access it. You know, either I have it with, like, for example, I have some with CoinSquare, which is, a, you know, has a process when someone passes away to release that crypto after they've seen copies of the valid will or uh, verified the, the testator's death. Uh, but if you have a private uh, wallet, it has a private key that's like 30 digits long. And if your executor doesn't have that, no dice. There's no central number to call. It's just you know stuck in the ether forever. So uh, that's really what we focus on when we talk about digital assets is access, right? Uh, and making sure that your, your executor knows about it and can get to it. So then what about... So the digital assets, so yes, Bitcoin and so forth. And I agree that that's, you know, um, something I, and I, the same as you, I use a Coinbase for what it's worth, but yeah, um, I don't know for what it's worth literally now, I guess, but yeah. um, so what about then like that digital footprint more broadly, you know, the, like your, your YouTube channel or your, your Twitter account or that kind of stuff. What do you like? What should people be thinking about there? Yeah, one thing I forgot to mention just on, on assets is actually when we were working with advisors, they asked about asset lists. Typically, you don't include a list of assets in your will because it becomes public domain during probate and because your assets change all the time. But we have added an asset list tool on Willful that allows you to compile a list of your assets and liabilities and store that with your will. So that's where you could say... I have crypto, it's with CoinSquare, you know, here's the contact, or I have a life insurance, I have a financial advisor, et cetera. Uh, on the kind of digital footprint side, I mean, that's not really an, you know, it's not a, a will issue. It's not a legal documents thing. It's a, uh, I, I need to put a plan in place myself. So for me, for example, I use one password. Uh, I have all of my digital accounts stored in a vault. My executor, is shared on that vault uh, because I trust them. Not everybody might want to do that. Uh, and I have my master password stored with a copy of my will. So if, you know, for example, my executor passed away at the same time as me and my backup executor was, was in charge of it, then at least they'd be able to access that. The challenge is, and I don't want to get too technical, the terms of service of all of these platforms say that you can't access someone else's account. It's actually illegal to use someone's login and impersonate them. So you know, technically, my husband, who's my executor, would just log in and shut down my social accounts and follow the things that I've set out in my, um, I actually have a social media wishes document that I've compiled, not most people probably don't. Uh, but technically, you're violating the terms of service of all of these platforms by doing that. So unfortunately, most of them haven't built in these legacy transfer functionality, right? So on Facebook, you can appoint a memorial contact, but on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, any of these other platforms, there is no mechanism. And so what you're left with as the executor or family members is this plethora of digital accounts where you have to literally contact and try to wade through their contact center details to figure out how to get these things closed. Sometimes there are assets of value in those accounts like PayPal. Uh, and sometimes it's more just the, the social presence that you want to shut down. But it's it's kind of a nightmare, right? And actually, as an advisor, the best thing you can do is collect that info from your clients, right? Hey, talk to me about what you'd want done with your Facebook account. Do you have a memorial contact? That's a really small step you can take in a meeting that you know helps get them a little bit closer to being organized. But I don't know. Google has the same kind, not quite as robust as how Facebook does it, but Google has like a, and it's not actually a memorial. It's like an absence thing, but. Yeah, that's uh, where they email you basically to check if you're still alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, a dead right. man switch. Uh, yeah, and, and it's, the yeah. other question is how many, even if they have this feature, how many people have actually know about it and have opted into it? Right. So uh, we've long thought about, you know, the the original idea for Willful wasn't actually the legal documents. It was everything outside of that because that's what we struggled with when Kevin's uncle passed away. Um, it just became, you know, legal documents became the obvious choice to pursue first. But that's really the goal with Willful is not just help people with the legal documents, but help them compile all of their end of life wishes from funeral and burial and celebration of life wishes to asset and liability lists to social media and digital preferences, maybe even memories and you know legacy wishes all in one place and then 
help with the seamless transfer of that information to loved ones when the time comes. Uh, that's really the long-term vision, partly with great partners and partly doing it ourselves. That's I did not know that you had that sort of broader vision of like a whole, I don't know what you call it, a, I guess a holistic approach to mortality. Is that? Yeah. Yes. And, and listen, there's some folks that are doing a great job of that. If you're listening to this, then you might be familiar with tools like Ready When that are catered towards advisors and, and help them record that information. So I think we're very cognizant of our strength right now, which is the legal documents. And, and so we'll look to kind of partner with people who are already doing a great job of some of those things, uh, whether that's, you know, life insurance or funeral and burial planning um, and and kind of bring partners in as needed. So I think you've been a great resource here, Erin. You know your business very well, obviously, and I think you could really paint that value proposition nicely. Is there anything else I should have asked, Erin, anything I missed here that you want a chance to talk about? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think if when I think about the listeners here, I don't have to sell you on the importance of a will. I just have to sell you on the importance of not only talking to your clients about them about it, but equipping them with the tools to actually get it done. And so uh, I will just say we have a, a great partnerships team. And if anyone is interested in learning about uh, our partnerships offerings, they can email partners at willful.co and we'd love to chat with them. Thanks so much, Erin. And uh, really appreciate you coming on today to talk about digital estate planning. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. Um, I was really happy to learn about Saskatchewan in there. I always love when a podcast guest uh, brings some new knowledge, something that I had no awareness of. So Aaron mentioned in there, and I'll include a link to the uh, press release from the government of Saskatchewan. But Aaron mentioned in there that Saskatchewan now allows uh, digital wills. And that's fantastic. I think that then we'll start to see other provinces, maybe. She said Ontario has this as part of maybe their mandate as well. So let's see. Maybe we'll get other provinces follow suit. What I wanted to chat about here a little bit that is an overlap with this episode is the concept of storage of our estate documents. Um, and this is a, a bit, we did talk about this a little bit um, back in season two with uh, another Aaron, with Aaron LaFuente. So if we rewind 50 years, and some estate lawyers still do this, I want to be clear here, but if we rewind 50 years, here's what you would have. You would go sit down with the lawyer. Uh, the lawyer would draft up the three documents, we'll say, assuming they did all three. It wasn't always the case 50 years ago, but let's say they did up your will, your power of attorney, your personal directive, you would have them signed and witnessed, and then the lawyer would notarize them. And the lawyer in those days would typically keep a physical copy of the will. Um, they would typically then have another sort of notarized copy. They would give that to you. So you would have a copy of your will as well. And they might give a third. I know the first time I had wills done, it was about 20 years ago, and that's exactly what happened. The The lawyer retained a copy of the will. Now, this is actually a, a pretty big deal, this uh, retaining a copy of a will. So just think about a, a law practice where, let's say the lawyer, for the sake of argument, you got, I don't know, four or five lawyers writing wills, and they see, I don't know, three clients a week for the sake of argument. Um, you're going to rack up about 150 wills then, and these are hefty documents, they're not small documents. So you're going to rack up about 150 wills per year per lawyer, so 750 wills. Now you've got 750 of these documents, and where do we store them? And that's just one year. So, you know, lawyers, you know, 10 years of this, you got 7,500 wills now. You can't just keep them in a filing cabinet in the back of the office. Uh, there are some issues with this. Uh, they are a bit of a fire hazard, so you have to have proper fire safety equipment uh, linked to this. There's an insurance risk there. If you talk to insurance folks and they deal with people who have offices that are pretty paper intensive, this becomes a concern. Um, the floor. So uh, a friend of mine actually is an architect, um, uh, sort of project manager now, and he does um, a lot of work in government buildings. And this is a common problem in government buildings where uh, the weight of paper stored in filing cabinets gets to be too much. You can't uh, have this on the second floor of an older building, maybe, or something like that, or flooring has to be reinforced before you can store there. So there's a whole issue with the, the actual physical capacity 
of lawyers to store these wills. They can't just keep them in a desk drawer in their office. And then destruction of the will. They can't just assume, and there are some guidances for this for lawyers, but essentially you're kind of stuck holding these documents for decades and decades. You can't just decide to destroy copies of a client's will. You have to know that a client has to have requested it or whatever the case is. Um, so for the lawyer to store these wills, while it used to be quite common, I am finding it's going to be less common. Now, we just had our wills updated, as I think folks know here. And when we did that, this lawyer is still keeping wills. I was kind of surprised, honestly, um, at that. But this lawyer has a copy of the will. And then I have a copy of the will as well. So I have a, a signed and notarized copy. Um, and I keep a copy in my house. Now, I'm going to talk about this in a moment here. So when it comes to sort of where you keep the documents you retain yourself, I have a shelf just up to my left here, fairly close to where I'm sitting right now, where, and probably because I refer to them fairly regularly, where I have all of our estate planning documents for both my spouse and I. Um, I have our insurance policies in there, and we have all the other sort of related stuff to our estate plan. And our executor knows where those documents are. Um, we've had the executor on, actually. This is the professional trustees over at uh, Sorrell uh, Private Trust. And um, my youngest son, who is my uh, contingent on our uh, personal directives, um, he also knows where these documents are. So there's a few people who know where those documents are. And storing them in the house is fine. Um, there's a couple of considerations here. I hear a lot of people say, well, store them in the deep freeze. And it's generally true, or in the freezer, whatever. Um, it's generally true that when you have a, a total loss house fire, that is the last thing to burn, but it's not that it never burns. So I had a former student who talked about this. I think I mentioned this once in a previous episode where she kept her you know, will in her icebox in her refrigerator. And uh, she thought, well, that's safe. And she came home, she'd had a total loss house fire and the whole thing had burned, like everything was ash. So um, fridges do burn. They just take longer to burn than other components of the house, I guess. I'm no firefighter. I don't know exactly how this works, but there you go. Um, so I could put it all in the freezer. I don't know. I, I know that there's a copy with our lawyer and I know that that's reasonably, um, let's say safe. So I've got that copy and this copy. Now, the other thing is we, because we had previous wills. Um, so when we got the new wills done, we had to destroy, I had to make sure that I destroyed all the old wills. So I did it by fire. I uh, went in the fire pit, uh, fire pit in our backyard. And I took all the copies of our wills. I made sure that uh, the executor didn't have a copy. The old lawyer destroyed the one that he had on file and actually sent it to me to destroy it. That's more accurate. Um, and I took those all, burned them in the fire pit. And the reason that we wanna do that is because it not that there's anything controversial in my will. I don't think anyways, I haven't died yet, so we don't know. But um, we don't want an old copy of the will kicking around and muddying the issue. So sometimes you can have somebody, you know, a beneficiary who says, well, the intention was thus, and we can see it in this old will. And then they'll argue a drafting error or a forgetfulness or something like that in the new will. Um, so just to have it clean, when you write a new will, um, you want to destroy old copies of any prior wills. Now, if you're in one of the provinces where a second will is common, so in Ontario, BC especially, we sometimes see a, a second will done deliberately, the first will to deal with all the sort of personal and household effects, and the second will to deal with shares of a private corporation. There, you're obviously not destroying the prior copy of the will. You're deliberately going to have two wills. Okay, so... That's uh, a little bit on storage. Now, I hear a lot of people say, well, what about the safety deposit box? I personally think this is a bit of overkill. Um, and I think it can have, in fact, I have seen this, some unintended negative consequences. So I go and get a safety deposit box, which has a cost. So this is the first issue is I'm paying something to use a safety deposit box. And then I store that document in my safety deposit box and now i know that my executor is going to need access to that safety deposit box so i die and my executor goes to access the safety deposit box well this isn't universal i'm not saying this always happens but sometimes the banker will say hey look 
we're only going to allow you, executor, access to the safety deposit box when you have proof that you're the executor. Well, where's the proof that you're the executor? It's locked up in the safety deposit box. So it's not maybe a common issue, but I have seen estate lawyers complain about this occasionally where a given bank, and it's not just one bank, it's, I don't know, it seems to be a fairly random thing, but one bank or another is making this argument that, you know, the, the executor can't access the safety deposit box because they're not named. Now, what should happen is the bank manager should go in there with the executor. The executor says, okay, let's open that thing up. The executor, the bank manager, sorry, opens that up, reads the will and says, okay, that's the person. So it should happen that way. I just, I don't know why you would pay a cost for this. Um, I also think it's viable to have a copy of the will with your executor. Now you want to be a little bit careful about this because we don't want copies roaming around everywhere, but I do think it's not a bad idea. Um, that the uh, executor has a copy of the will. The other thing I'll mention actually about the fire, if you die in a total loss house fire, the assumption is unless another copy of your will can be found is that your will was in the house when you died in the total loss house fire. So the assumption there is that if there's no copy of the will that can be found, that any copy of the will was in the house with you and burned when you did. So kind of interesting, I don't know, a little bit of trivia or what if we want to call it. All right. Our number today is six. The number today is six. And I did want to um, extend a thank you to Bob Carter for making this introduction. So Bob um, is somebody I met through Canadian Group Insurance Brokers, and he uh, sort of helps advisors to um, find or to sort of build their businesses from the perspective of, you know, what offerings could I have on my shelf that I may not have right now. Um, so Bob did a whole bunch of intros to various people with me before Christmas, and I'm going to have maybe three or four of those on the podcast over the next few months here. So um, thanks to Bob Carter at uh, Carter Consulting Group. Um, I'll include a link to his website in the uh, show notes here. Um, I have asked Bob to be on the website, but he's, um, and to his credit, I, I think we're still going to find a way to navigate this, um, but he is aware that uh we don't want sort of pure sales content. This has to be educational. And I think you've heard this with Aaron's um, interview here. This has to be primarily educational. He's a little concerned that this might uh, come across too salesy. So I, I do try to avoid that. And I appreciate um, his perspective there. So there you go. All right. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, if you are back again in uh, two weeks, um, we have actually a, a CGIB Navigator podcast, speaking of CGIB. Uh, Dave Patriarch and I will be interviewing um, a dentist, a sort of near retirement dentist with a strong reg regulatory background. Uh, this was a, a great um, interview. And as when we had a pharmacist on previously, just learn a ton about the business here and about how this sort of overlaps with the group benefit space. So thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on 
wall certificate, and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about.